Good morning, beloved. How's everybody this morning? Good. Praise be to God. Praise be to God. I want to offer my word of welcome to those of you who are visiting with us uh, for the first time or the second time or the 15th time. Uh, if I haven't said hi to you or shaken your hand and gotten to know you, um, please forgive me. Welcome. We are so glad that you're here. I'm Pastor T, one of the four pastors at Anacostia River Church family, um, and we're just so glad that you're here and worshiping with us. Make yourselves at home. Stick around afterwards so we can greet you. Maybe there's some muffins or a coffee afterward. We'd love to get to know you a little bit if you would stick around. Well, beloved, before we turn our attention to God's Word, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2. For those of you who are following along with us in the Bible, you can turn there with us. We're going to be in verse 16. Uh, but before we do that, let's take care of our homework assignment this morning. Last week, we were in verses 13 to 15. Uh, is there anybody who wants to recite those verses for us, or maybe all of chapter 2 or all of chapter 1? Whatever you like. Any takers this morning? Okay, come on, here we go, here we go. Y'all encourage my sister. Amen, amen, amen. Well done. Threw in today's verse for good measure. I like it, I like it. Anybody else? Anybody else? Well, praise God. This week we are going to be uh, committing to memory 1 Peter 2, verse 16, which is our text for this morning. So before we turn there, let me offer a word of prayer. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do praise you that you are the cornerstone, chosen and precious. We give you praise, O Lord, that we are being built together with you to be a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer sacrifices acceptable to God through your name. We thank you, Lord, that you've made us a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for your own possession. And we do pray that you give us grace to proclaim your excellencies. We thank you, Lord, that you have saved us. You have called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. And we pray that you would do that even this morning, that you would save someone in the preaching of your word, calling them from the darkness of sin into the light of your great salvation. Well, we pray, work this morning by your spirit and your word in Jesus' name. Amen. The silver trump of freedom had roused my soul to eternal wakefulness. Freedom now appeared to disappear no more forever. It was heard in every sound and seen in everything. It was ever present to torment me with a sense of my wretched condition. I saw nothing without seeing it. I heard nothing without hearing it and felt nothing without feeling it. Freedom looked from every star it smiled in every calm, breathed in every wind, and moved in every storm. Few people have written so eloquently and powerfully about slavery and freedom as Frederick Douglass, the lion of Anacostia, touched hearts and stirred action across this country and across the Atlantic. What made Douglass's speeches about freedom so powerful was his deep personal acquaintance with slavery. You don't understand how great liberty is until you know how dark captivity is. When you've tasted the bitter poison of slavery, then you know, as one writer puts it, a lighter chain does not make slavery or make the slave any less a slave. And easier slavery is not a better slavery. Once freedom is tasted and enjoyed, only freedom will do. Only freedom will do once it enters the heart. That's what Douglas meant when he wrote, freedom now appeared to disappear no more forever. It was heard in every sound and seen in everything. What Frederick Douglass wanted for enslaved African Americans, God wants 
for his people through Jesus Christ. The experience of liberty. To be set free from captivity. Not just the bonds of physical chains, but those stronger bonds of invisible chains. The bonds of slavery and death. If you get nothing else from the sermon this morning, know this. That God sent his son into the world to free us. He offers us freedom in the gospel. That's the theme for our verse, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 16. And as we look at that verse, I want us to sort of observe three things. This is our outline, very simply. Number one, live free. Number two, expose sin. And number three, serve God. And we get those points from each of the phrases or clauses in this sentence. Live free, expose sin, serve God. For context, I'm going to read for us beginning uh, in verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Verse 16 again. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Our first point this morning is God calls his people to live free. This verse has one command and two conditions. The command there is right there at the beginning. Live as people who are free. Now, striking to me, Peter includes this sentence in the middle of a paragraph that begins and ends with submission to authority. You see there at the, at the beginning, be subject to every human institution. And then at the end, honor the emperor. That's striking because a lot of people think that submission to authority is a contradiction to freedom. They believe that obeying someone means they are oppressed or controlled. They believe that obeying someone uh, contradicts freedom, that, that freedom means there are no restraints whatsoever on whatever it is they wish to do. But freedom, properly understood, is no contradiction to authority at all. Proper authority respects and protects personal freedom. And personal freedom honors and supports proper authority. So the Bible commands us as Christians to live as people who are free. What does that mean? What does a free community look like? Well, I want to suggest four answers to that question from the scripture. Number one, free people see freedom as a calling. They see it and receive it as a calling. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, for freedom, Christ has set us free. That almost sounds like circular reasoning, right? But it's true. Jesus sets us free so we can have freedom, so we can enjoy freedom. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Free, Or as Paul puts it a few verses later in verse 13 of Galatians 5, for you were called to freedom, brothers. You were called to it. To be called to something is to be, to be summoned to it, right? So if I were to look out and see my son Titus and say, come over here and stand by the pulpit, I would be summoning him. I would be calling him to come and take his place here by the pulpit. So it is in the gospel, God has called us, he has summoned us from slavery to come take our place, to come live our life, not in enslavement, but in freedom. We have been set free from slavery to sin and guilt and shame and death. You feel like you can't escape shame 
and guilt or the fear of death, you need to live in the freedom that Jesus gives. You need to live in that liberty that he has granted us former captives. We have, as Romans 8.21 puts it, the freedom of the glory of the children of God. As Christians, we should always feel that, that God intended us to know the blessing of liberty. It should feel like a calling to us. It should feel like a, a burden to us, a, a yearning to us. We should be so many Frederick Douglasses who said, once I heard the trump of freedom, it seemed to be in everything. In every sight, in every sound, in every taste, in every touch, freedom just kept calling me. But that's our calling. We were never meant to be slaves. We were never meant to be oppressed. Freedom is the Christian's right, our destiny, our inheritance. And when we know this calling and feel it as a calling, then we can enjoy it with confidence. Freedom, first of all, free people feel it as a calling. What does it look like in this community? Number two, free people, well, they trust God for their freedom. The Christian's freedom does not come through armed warfare. It doesn't come through self-effort and moral improvement. Our liberty comes from God. Our God, in fact, is a liberating God. We see that throughout the Bible. God set Israel free from slavery in Egypt in the Exodus. God returned Israel from Babylonian captivity back into their homeland and, and back from exile. God raised up judges over and over again to free his people from the oppression of their enemies. And God has now set the Christians free through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. The Apostle John tells us about this in John 8, verses 34 to 36. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, Everyone who practice, practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. Verse 36. So, if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I love that word indeed. It's not a, a head-hunting, job-searching firm. Love that word indeed. It means for real, for real, for real. That if Jesus sets you free, it, it's not a figment of your imagination. It's not just something you say to yourself. It's not just something that religious people kind of talk about in their religious language. If the Son sets you free, you will be free for real, for real. breaks every chain, destroys every yoke. He eliminates every oppressor, especially the oppression of sin and death and guilt and shame. Would you be free of that thing? That, that thing that you don't want to name because it instantly brings embarrassment and shame. Would you be free of that thing that quietly reminds you of its presence even when you're trying to enjoy the holy things of God? Would you be free of that thing that tempts you and seduces you to avoid the company of God's people because his presence brings you so much guilt? Then turn to Jesus, the liberator, the freedom giver, Forget Abraham Lincoln. Jesus is the great emancipator. He's the one who sets free and sets free indeed. I want you to know this morning that whatever it is that threatens to take you captive, there is a Savior who has ransomed you by his blood and who will make you free indeed. We trust God for our freedom. Romans 8, verse 2, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Listen, beloved, God is not a mean, overly strict grandfather who never let the grandkids leave the house. Maybe I'm the only one who had a granddaddy like that. Don't leave that porch, boy. 
was I heard about some one man once um, kind of jealous and protective and restrictive with his family. When he left house for the work, he would um, put a bag of flour on the steps. So then we came home, he'd know if somebody left out or came in. God ain't like that. Trying to imprison you in your own house. Trying to hold you captive instead of other things that you prefer. Some people think God is trying to control them in that restrictive, jealous way. But the Bible makes it clear, God is the one who sets us free. And free people trust God for their freedom. Which brings us to a third thing. Free people must defend their freedom. What I think about freedom is there's a whole lot of people trying to take it away from you. In the natural world, there are men who try to take freedom away from women. There are dictators who try to take freedom away from citizens. There are evil men and women who traffic boys and girls across the world in the slave trade. So freedom is the kind of thing that once you get it, you must maintain or defend it. The true, the, the, the true thing about the Christian life is, yes, we are free, but we better be on guard. For example, we must defend our freedom against false teachers. The letter to the Galatians is an extended meditation on freedom that we have in Christ. And so it's not surprising that in chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, the Apostle Paul warns this. He says, yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in, notice, to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. That's striking. Paul says, listen, in the early church, in his day, there were people in the church singing and um, offering and, and, and clapping hands and all this good stuff, but they weren't real Christians. They were false brethren, and they had managed to become teachers. And, and the reason that they had sort of slipped into the church was to sort of see what you was doing, to spy out your freedom. These people over here don't look like they're that concerned about the law. These people over here doing stuff that I don't think religious people ought to do. You know what? Let me rise in the ranks of leadership so I can re-enslave them to the law. So I can bring them back under my control. This freedom stuff make me nervous. Y'all don't look like you know how to handle it. Oh, beloved, that's been a threat since the Apostle Paul. Notice what he said, we did not yield to them even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel would be preserved for you. Don't you let nobody take your freedom in Christ. Because there's more at stake than just your freedom. The gospel itself is at stake. Because when a man comes through adding law to the cross, when he comes through adding commandment to the cross, when he comes through adding anything to the work of Jesus, he has robbed you not only of your freedom, but of the gospel itself. Don't give in to that for a moment. Learn to live free and defend your freedom. When we defend Christian freedom, we preserve and protect the gospel for all those who come along later or come along behind us. So as he says in Romans, uh, Galatians 5.1, we must stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And this is a peculiar thing. That sometimes people who have been freed actually want to return to their slavery. We got a biblical example of that in Egypt, don't we? Israelites are freed. Living free gets a little hard. They got to trust God, but they don't want to trust God. They don't want to walk by faith. They, they remember what they saw in Egypt, and they want to go back to Egypt. We got examples of that from history. I love the story of Harriet Tubman leading so many African Americans free on the Underground Railroad. Every once in a while, she had to take that Colt uh, pistol and point it at a slave and say, you going to be free. <laughs> we ain't going back. <laughs> and so we got to protect our freedom by living free and helping others to continue in that freedom instead of being robbed of it by false teachers, robbed of it by legalism 
robbed of it by religious tradition that's not rooted in the Bible. Because Christ means for us to be free. Here's the fourth and final thing. Free people obey God's word. If God is the source of our freedom, then it's not surprising that obeying his word enhances our freedom. Again, John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You see the chain of things there, abiding in his word, becoming a disciple, as a disciple learning and knowing the truth, and as a consequence of knowing the truth, being free. God's word brings freedom. And if you're here this morning and you feel like the Bible is just a a pile of restrictions, then you you know neither God nor the Bible. As as plain as I can be with you, you know neither God nor the Bible. Uh, You have been seduced into thinking that what God wants is, again, a, a kind of maniacal, tyrannical control of your life and not letting you have any fun, that God is a kind of cosmic killjoy. Beloved, that's not what God is. God is kind and loving and generous and gracious. God frees people, but not to recklessness, as we'll see in a moment. God frees people to flourish in everything that's good. And everything in his word is meant for your good. If you think his word is somehow uh, a, a, a burdensome restriction, if you think his word is somehow slavery itself, all I can say for you is you don't yet know what's good for you. God's word makes us free. His truth makes us free. And that's because God himself is a liberating God. Abiding in his word brings us to the knowledge of the truth, and that truth frees us. So, ARC, what are we going to do with this? How do we apply this? Well, let me just ask you some questions. Maybe you can talk about them over lunch or journal through these questions this week in your quiet time. Talk with a, a Christian friend. Let's ask you just a few questions. How free are we We tell ourselves that America is, what is it, home of the brave, land of the free. But if living free includes trusting God, obeying his word, and defending against false teachers, are we living with much freedom? I hope so, because that's our calling and that's God's desire for us. But but think about your own life. Do you feel free? If not, what's in the way? What's hindering the, the, fee, the freedom of feeling free, the, the confidence that comes from having freedom be your calling? What's, what's hindering you? Even in, say, public worship. We worship beautifully this morning. I was so encouraged. We didn't, we didn't need to stop. Thank you, praise team, uh, for the time this morning. But Essie and Tasha and, and my sister Valerie can't be the only ones hopping up here now. You not feel free to hop for the Lord, raise your hand in praise to the Lord, or to shout hallelujah in a room full of people who are with you? It's a silly example, a simple example. But how free are we? Would we like to experience more deeply the freedom that God gives? Seek it while it may be frowned. And my friend, if you're here this morning, you're not yet a Christian, I wonder what you think freedom means. The gospel brings good news that Christ, our liberator, has come. He proclaims liberty to the captives. I wonder, first of all, if you recognize that if you're not yet a Christian, that you are in fact a captive. That you're a captive of your own sin, that you are enslaved by your own desire. So much so that you may not even recognize which sins and desires are right or wrong, which are black or white. Those may be confused categories 
in your mind, which, which, is, which is actually an effect of slavery. Somebody asked you this question. Is there any sin or desire in your life that you feel like you can't escape? That maybe even you recognize is wrong and you don't want to escape it. Beloved, according to the Bible, that is slavery. You're enslaved to that sin. And the only one who can free you from it is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has done everything that needs to be done to free you from it. He has come into the world in our human flesh. He has died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin and to set us free. He was raised from the grave three days later. And everyone who puts their faith in him have all of their sins forgiven, past, present, future. And that's the source of your freedom. The finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross and in the resurrection. Washing sins away. So if you would be free, turn from your sin and put your faith in Jesus. Trust him as your God and Savior. You will not only be forgiven and and declared righteous, you will indeed come into this liberty that only he can give. If you have questions about that, see us after the service. Talk to us uh, out in the lobby or follow up with us later this week. We'd like nothing more than to make you, make, help you understand that, make sure that you understand that message, and to make sure that you understand what's on offer to you. Not just a religion, but a God who is alive and eternal life with him in his love. Talk with us. We'd love to tell you more. But we should move to our second point. So the first point there is the command to live free. The second point there is exposed sin. We see that in that clause. It's the first of two conditions. He says, live as people who are free. Then he, then he qualifies, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. See, living as free people cannot mean using freedom as an excuse or a cover-up or a justification for evil desires and actions. When Adam and Eve first sinned in the Garden of Eden, they quickly, what, tried to hide themselves with fig leaves. They were looking for a cover-up. We don't make fig leaves much anymore, but this text is telling us that some of us will try to use freedom like fig leaves to hide evil intent, to hide evil actions. People commonly confuse freedom for doing whatever they want to do. The culture says, you should be free to love whoever you love. The world says, do whatever makes you happy. And often what people want to do is evil or sinful in God's eyes. When someone tells them they shouldn't do that evil thing, they, they justify themselves with words or something like this. I'm free to do what I want to do. That's what Peter's talking about. Using freedom as a cover-up, as a justification, as an excuse for doing something God forbids. Now, teaching people to think that way is the specialty of false teachers. That's what false teachers do over and over again in the Bible. They, they pervert freedom by using it as a justification for sin. Let me give you two examples from the Scripture. The first is 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 17 and 19. You can flip over a page or two. You'll be right there at it. This is what Peter says describing uh, the false teachers. He calls them in verse 17, waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. Then he says this in verse 18. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom. But they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. You see how the false teachers tickle the flesh? They arouse, they seduce by stirring the passions, which incidentally just last week and the week before, Peter was telling us we need to abstain from those very things, right? So they tickle the flesh. And and notice who they pick off. 
They're picking off people who have barely, notice how it says there, barely escaping from those who live in error. I take that to mean Peter is saying uh, the spiritually immature in particular. They've just escaped error. They've just become Christians. Or maybe they've been Christians for a minute, but haven't been discipled, don't quite know how to live for Jesus yet. They're barely escaping that former error. Those are the ones who are so easily picked off by false teachers. And those false teachers say things like, God is gracious. God understands. A little sin to satisfy that desire is okay. You're going to feel better if you just give in a little bit. Why did God give you that desire if it's not okay? That's the false teacher's specialty. Perverting grace into license for sin. They are slaves and they will enslave those who follow them. But beloved, God is not tempted by evil. And he does not tempt anyone with evil. Remember what Peter taught a couple of verses earlier. First Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. So we have, to, we have to abstain from it. We have to recognize the warfare that we are in. Or consider how the Apostle Paul puts it in a couple places. Romans 13, 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify his desires. Or again, that second sentence in Galatians 5, verse 13, for you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. We should never appeal to freedom as a way of rationalizing sinful desire and sinful action. Freedom, beloved, is not contrary to holiness. Freedom is the product of holiness. And freedom is not contrary to self-denial. It's by self-denial that we refuse the enslavement of a sinful world. When we abstain from the flesh, we get to enjoy the liberty that God has called us to. When we give in to the flesh, we, like former slaves in Egypt, are trying to go back to Pharaoh. Abstain and be free. So again, some questions. How have we been doing with abstaining from the passions of the flesh? We preached about that two weeks ago. How have the last two weeks been? It wouldn't surprise me that having heard a sermon on that topic, if the enemy dialed up the warfare a little bit if the flesh got more unruly, right? But have we been more vigilant, more watchful, more careful? How are we doing at abstaining from the flesh? Are we killing sin at the root, at the level of desire? Or are we leaving room for the flesh? Are we making provisions? Are we putting aside supplies in order to satisfy the desires of the flesh? How are we doing? Beloved, I want to tell you something about my flesh and your flesh. The flesh is stubborn. It's stubborn. That's why we have to keep fighting it and keep killing it. And initially, the fight may seem like it's going to be forever and relentless. But each time we say no to the flesh, beloved, we gain more power over it. And each time we say yes to the Holy Spirit, we gain more freedom in him. Some of you know I'm a wannabe basketball coach. Basketball, they say, is a game of runs. Anybody heard that phrase? Yeah. A run is when you stop a team on defense from scoring, and then you go score. And then you stop them again, and then you go score. And you stop them again, and you go score. So if you can go on a run of six points to zero, 10 points to zero, if you have a really great run of 20 points to zero, chances are you're going to win the game. The, the team that has the most runs is likely to win. Well, the spiritual life is like that. We've got to keep the flesh from scoring day by day. We've got to stop them on defense, and then we've got to yield ourselves to Christ. 
And we've we got to score one for righteousness. And, and so the, the spiritual life and the warfare that we're in is a lot like that basketball game. We've got to get a stop, and then we score. We've got to get a stop, and then we score. And every once in a while, the flesh scores too. That's the sad truth, ain't it? It's just me. Just me and Doug. All right, we the only people in here telling the truth. Every once in a while, the flesh scores, right? Now, when that happens, you know what you got to do. You got to go on another run. You got to get a stop, and then you got to get a yes to the Lord. You got to get a stop, and you got to get a yes to the Lord. The spiritual life is the accumulation of runs, beloved. I tell you this because if we are tempted to think that we are with one final blow going to decisively beat the flesh, we deceive ourselves. And then when the flesh scores, we get discouraged. And we begin to think thoughts that are not true, like I'm never going to be free from this. But for freedom, Christ has set you free. We, we begin to think that, you know what, um, this, this is, God gave me this, and so I, no, 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 beloved. God doesn't tempt you with evil. The world, the flesh, and the devil are your enemies. That's where it comes from. Abstain again and say yes to the Lord. Abstain again and say yes to the Lord. Abstain again and say yes to the Lord. And you will be walking and I will be walking in increased victory and freedom from that thing. So, where are you in this game of runs? Have you gone on a run? Are you up on the score? Do you need to get a stop and start a new run? I pray that whatever we need, God would give us grace to do. And this I know he will do because he's already won the victory. This brings us to our final point. Serve God. See, that second condition is in contrast with the first condition. On the one hand, Peter says we are not to use our freedom as a cover-up for evil. By contrast, then on the second hand, Peter teaches us that true freedom means living as servants of God. The word servants could be translated bondservants or slaves. Instead of being enslaved to sin, the truly free person is a slave to God. It's ironic, but spiritually speaking, freedom and slavery are the same thing if you are a slave of God through faith in Jesus Christ. The entire goal of Christian freedom is that we might serve God with our lives. When we were lost in sin, we were not servants of God. We could not serve God because sin was our master. But through Jesus Christ, we have a new master. He's a master so loving, so good, and so generous that serving him feels like no slavery at all, but feels like freedom, feels like liberty. Well, the natural question might be then, well, how do we serve God with our freedom? Well, once again, in the Bible, I want to pull up four ways. So four ways we should serve God with our freedom. Four ways we should prove ourselves to be slaves of God. Number one, we should use our bodies for righteousness. We should use our bodies for righteousness. That's what I get from Romans chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness." In other words, freedom in service to God looks like using our, our members, our bodies, in the cause of righteousness. Now, this is important on so many levels, but I just want to stress one this morning. We have to have a, a functioning theology of the body for this to make sense. And I think many of us have, have sort of grown up in Christian circles that have so emphasized the inner life, have so em emphasized individual piety, that we have slipped over into a kind of Gnosticism. The Gnostics were an ancient group of people who, who made this error. They said that uh, everything spiritual was good, everything physical was evil, and since we have been spiritually saved, it didn't matter what we did with our bodies. 
And so they got into all kinds of perversions, and the early church rejected that error. And I think, I think there's a low-key version of Gnosticism that sneaks into the Christian life because we don't have any theological thoughts about this flesh that we're in, this body that we're in, and what it's for. So we are embodied souls. We are, we are made up of both soul and body, and both matter, and both are redeemed by Christ. It's not just that our souls are saved, but our bodies are too. And on the day that we see Christ, he's going to give us a new and glorified body. Right? So embodiment matters, and what we do matters practically. What we do with our bodies matters practically, either in the cause of unrighteousness or righteousness. And this text says, let us use our bodies for righteousness. This means, to make it very plain, a parent should never lift their hand in anger toward their child. Righteousness would hold the child and care for the child and direct the child, but not beat the child. A husband should never raise his hand, ever, at his wife or a boyfriend, at his girlfriend. That's unholy. It's unrighteous. It is a wicked use of the body. This means that if we're not married, we need to abstain from sexual immorality. Or if we are married, we need to abstain from sexual immorality with someone not our wife, right? And so many other examples. How we use our body is a reflection of whether or not we are slaves to God or slaves to sin. And how we use our body is a tool for either unrighteousness or righteousness. And free people use their bodies for righteousness because we are slaves to God. Number two, we should worship and serve God alone. We should worship and serve God alone. The Lord Jesus gives us a wonderful example of this. Uh, in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 4, you remember that the Holy Spirit drove him into the wilderness where he would be tempted by Satan. Satan came to him with three temptations, and in the third temptation, Jesus responds to Satan this way. He says in Matthew 4 verse 10, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So there's this kind of exclusivity. That, that, that should be in the Christian's life, that is a part of their using their freedom to serve God. That, that we are exclusive. We, we only have one God. We only serve one God. And we don't serve other gods. We don't serve the, the formal idols of other religions. And we don't serve the functional idols that we make up in this world, whether that's money or power or sex or whatever it is, right? We, we are people who are committed to smashing idols, and refusing idolatry so that we can worship the one true and living God and him alone. So as a kingdom of priests, we are set apart as holy to the Lord. And our service belongs exclusively to him. This is why the text says in places like Colossians chapter 3, even when it comes to something like um, serving our employers in the workplace, the text says basically obey your employer because it's the Lord that you serve, right? Your reward comes from him. Or, or why I could say to wives in Ephesians chapter 5, when it says, honor and submit to your husbands, it says, as unto the Lord, right? Because everything we do is a matter of worship and our highest loyalty and our exclusive fidelity is to God and no one else. And so if we would be a community of free people, who serve the Lord, part of what that means is we must be a people committed to serving only the Lord and not the false gods that fill our culture. Number three, we should use our gifts to build up the church. So if you're in 1 Peter chapter 2 still, just flip over one page to 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, and Peter writes these words, as each has received a gift, Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. 
Whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So the thing about servants is that they don't use their gifts for selfish gain. They use their gifts to serve their master. They use their gifts to take care of their master's household. He calls it a stewardship here. It's good stewards of God's varied grace. So every Christian has a spiritual gift. We don't all have the same gift. That's why he calls it a varied grace. We all have these grace gifts, and the whole intention of these grace gifts is that we might use them in service to God to build up his church. And whatever that gift is, we have to steward it faithfully in a way that brings God glory. And when you read a text like this in the Bible, it's really clear, if I can go back to my basketball analogy, that God doesn't really have a bench. He doesn't have any players waiting to get in the game. That's not the design. Everybody should be in the game. Everybody should be using their gifts. Everybody should be working to build up the church. That's what faithful stewardship looks like. That's what faithful service to God looks like. And if somehow we are burying our gifts, well, Jesus tells us a story about that, doesn't he? about persons that were given different talents, one, one talent, another five, another ten. The ones who had five and ten took the talents, went out, multiplied them, brought them back to the Lord, says, here's the five you gave me plus five more. Here's the ten you gave me plus ten more. But that one servant who had one talent buried his talent and came back and said, I knew you were a hard man reaping where you didn't sow. Here's your one talent. I don't know why he thought that was a good explanation. And in the parable, he's called a wicked servant because he didn't use his gift. He didn't improve the gift. He didn't multiply the gift in service to God. May that be none of us. Let's get in where we fit in, use the gifts that we have, serve the Lord with gladness, build up his church. That's what it looks like to be a servant. Number four, finally, it looks like loving other people. If we live as servants of God, beloved, that means we must love other people. We see this all over the Bible, but consider just a couple of passages for illustration. Galatians 5.13 again. You should have this memorized by now. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, last phrase now, but through love. Serve one another. Or 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19, the Apostle Paul says there, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win some. And so between these two texts, we got two audiences and two goals. Inside the church, Romans chapter 5, verse 13, we love each other through service. Outside the church, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19, we make ourselves, in a sense, servants to all in, in, in evangelism, in giving them the gospel with the hopes that we might win them to Christ. So whether we are looking at our brothers and sisters inside the church or looking at people who are not yet Christians outside the church, our main response to other people made in God's image is love, genuine love that serves the body and evangelizes the world. If we are God's servants, that's what he has left us in the world to do. If he is our master, that's the instruction that he has given us. Love the brother and sister next to you. Eliminate anonymity. Create intimacy. Enjoy holy affection. Build one another up. And look out onto the world, taken seriously the reality of an everlasting hell and unending judgment. And have compassion on those who do not yet know Jesus. And go to them in love and in humility and tell them about Jesus. That he is the proof that God loves them. That he is the proof that their sins have been taken care of on the cross. That he is the proof that there can be righteousness with God because he's been raised from the grave. He is the door to eternal life. Let them know that there's a way to escape the judgment that's coming. And let them know that there is a bountiful love 
from an omnipotent God for everyone who would come to him. If we would love our neighbor, we should give them a cup of sugar, but we should also give them the gospel. For it's no love that loans sugar, but withholds salvation. If we would be a free people serving God, we must love others, our neighbors and our brothers and sisters in the church. And so let's end with a couple of questions again for your journaling pleasure, for your conversation over lunch, for your email to Pastor Dennis later. Here are some questions. If those four things define what it means to be a servant of God, what kind of servants are we? Are we the kind of servants who yield our physical bodies to righteousness instead of sin? Are we the kind of servants who worship God alone and refuse the temptations of the world, the flesh, and the devil? Are we the kind of servants who faithfully use our spiritual gifts to build up the church? And are we the kind of servants who love people in service to Christians and evangelism to people who are not yet Christians. A free life is a God-serving life. We were called to freedom when we were called to Christ by faith. We must not use our freedom as an excuse for evil, but use it for every form of good in service to God. May the Lord help us to do so. Let's pray together. Father, indeed, we thank you that for freedom, Christ has set us free. We were slaves and didn't know it. Someone told us we were captives. We didn't believe it. And yet at the same time, we had the evidence of a life that could not be reformed, that could not be changed, that could not escape our bondage to our flesh and to the world and to the enemy. And so we thank you for doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. We thank you, Lord, that while we were dead in trespasses and sins, you gave your son for our redemption, and through him you made us alive again through faith, that you have raised us together with him to eternal life. And now we are free. We're free from our sins. We're free from guilt. We are free from shame. We're free from the fear of death. We are free now from those things to serve you. That's what we want to do. We want to serve you faithfully. We want to serve you gladly. We want to serve you, O oh Lord, with our whole hearts. We want to love you with all of our strength, all of our mind. We want to love you with all of our soul. And we thank you that through the gospel you freed us to do so. Make us more and more free as we obey the truth. Make us more and more free as we abide in your word. And help us to announce to a, a world-held captive that there is an emancipator, a liberator, a risen Savior who brings freedom to all who believe. And our Lord, we pray, let many, let many, many, many thousands, many millions believe and be saved. Do this for your glory and for the, the joy of your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.